Support for Tantrum comes from MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork since 2001. MailChimp, send better email. The podcast you are about to hear is about raising kids, but it's for adults. There are curse words and talk of grown-up things, so make with the headphones. Welcome to Tantrum. My name is Andy Schiff. My moment of parenting glory is using music to help my daughter overcome her anxiety about potty training. When she sat on the toilet, I sat on the floor next to her singing her popular songs with lyrics adapted for the occasion. The song I tried that finally worked was the Eddie Murphy, Rick James song, Party All the Time. Nearly three years later, she still loves the song, and she still thinks the chorus is, My girl wants to potty all the time, potty all the time, potty all the time. My girl wants to potty all the time, potty all the time. She potties all the time. (laughs) Tantrum is a podcast for grown-ups about raising kids. I'm Kate Sweeney. And I'm Allison Harney. And now I have that song in my head. She wants to potty all the time. Potty all the time. It's catchy. It's really, it's really damn catchy. Today we'll hear from Elizabeth Lenhard, who read at our September show at Kavarna. It was just like explaining anything else. Why is the sky blue? Why does honey taste sweet? Why are those two squirrels screeching and humping each other like mad? Elizabeth's story is about learning to temper her fears over what she can and can't control while raising her kids. And it's pretty amazing considering the terrifying situation she once powered herself out of. It's a great story. And without getting too much into it, it kind of goes to this idea of explaining things the right way and kind of not screwing that up. Or that's one of the ideas in the story. Allison, do you ever struggle with that with Merritt, your two-year-old, or with your stepdaughter, Alice? She's seven now, right? Yeah. I mean, I would say that the one that jumps into my mind is just that Alice has two homes and Merritt will only have one home. Um, And how to explain why Alice has a different mom and why she has three moms and why Alice has this totally different family situation and yet they're sisters you know it's I think there's still a lot that Alice is unsure about why her mother and father want to have separate houses and want to be raising separate families and so she often asks if we can all live in one house together and we're like eh Probably not. (laughs) So to open this up really quickly, can you explain quickly like what the deal with that is? Sure, yeah. Um, I am a stepmother to Alice, and Alice's biological mother and my husband conceived Alice. Uh, They were in a brief relationship, and they they never were married. They never lived in the same house. Alice has always had these two homes, and her biological mother has been raising since Alice's birth, um, Alice with a, a another woman. So Alice has always known two homes, but it's taking her a while to catch on to what is a biological mother and how, you know, how do you have a baby? Because she has a little sister with her two moms that didn't require a dad. And, you know, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. And so... I imagine that if this were like one of those like Annie Lamott novels from like the 1990s, you I guys, love her. <laughs> I don't know why I called on Anne, Anne Lamott of all people, but like you all would end up all living somehow together and being one family in the end. And Right. I mean, and in some ways 
we are as close to that as I feel like maybe one could ask for right now, at least. You know, we live in very close proximity. We have good relationships with them. We do birthday parties together. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how it all goes along. And, you know, I think in some episodes we'll hear about other families that decide to be separate but living together and just the ways that families can take on all different forms. Absolutely. It seems like as good a moment as any to hear a parental moment of glory. These are moments that you, our listeners, share. Moments of parenting, hilarity, brilliance, failure, or discovery. You can call in with yours at 678-379-3748. We'd love to play it on the podcast and maybe even use it in our next live show. So here are a few from our most recent show in September at Kavarna, where audience members write them down and we read them aloud. Here we have one from Suzanne. My son has been pretending to be a different animal each day. This has led to a morning routine of him standing at the door, waving goodbye to my daughter and me, and shouting something like, I'll, I'll miss your trunks, if we're elephants, or I'll miss your tentacles if we're colossal squids. Then one day, we weren't really being animals that day. And as we left, he shouted at the top of his voice at the door, I'll miss your vaginas! (laughs) You know, like all of these sort of of out-of-the-mouths-of-babes moments, I love them. It's like one of those things that before I had kids, I would have sort of a limited, uh, I would have a limited attention span for. Mm-hmm. And it, what it makes me think about is this. So we have one kid and he is like, he's like a year and a half old. I still have these moments where I just see him and I just want to squeeze him. And I just like the love inside of me just feels so overpowering. Yes. Also recognizing that the way you feel about your child, you know that nobody else feels that way except maybe your husband or maybe your mom or something. And even if you just like see somebody else's kid, it's unlikely you'll ever feel that surge. I mean, just last night I went out with a friend who doesn't have children and she came over and I was doing bedtime with Bird and Bird was sitting in my lap and I was reading him Margaret Wise Brown's uh, The Big Red Barn, you know, which basically just at this point consists of pointing out different animals and saying what they are. And he loves that, you know, he'll be like, you know, he'll go like moo for the cow and you'll say, yes, that's the moo cow. And we're sitting there in the, in sort of the semi darkness and it was this wonderful moment with his sort of soft weight on my lap and I thought oh oh this friend she she'd never she's never met bird and she's gonna get to see him and something in me thought like oh she'll just be swept away by how wonderful he is in this moment and she came in and she was just like okay you ready to go and she's just you know there's no reason for her to feel the affection that I feel for my child and it's hard for me to realize that at every moment mm-hmm. I know I, I mean and then you have those friends that really just aren't that in kids and And there's no reason they should be yeah i had a friend who came over last night and she only saw merit while merit was like getting in her pajamas and i'm just like is there anything cuter in the world than like my baby in her pajamas no that's the cutest thing and you know she's like oh hi another baby all my friends have baby here's another one it's so weird to realize that in so many ways 
I'm embodying like cliches about motherhood now. In, in the past year and a half since I've had Bird, I've really spent that time really trying to figure out like what my life ambitions are now and what my personal ambitions are and everything feels topsy-turvy and kind of crazy in that way. And I mean, I mean, it's okay, but but it, it does feel a little bit tumultuous. And every time I try to explain it, it comes out as a cliche. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it makes us more forgiving of some of those cliches because you can't help but reorganize your life into believing that these children are the most important thing. And I have some friends without kids and they're, they're critical of this thing of, you know, you invest everything into the, these like one, two, three people. And there's this whole planet full of children and people and cats and dying rivers. And, you, you know, there's just so many causes you have a kid, you still know that, but you also know what you care about first and you can't help it. It just yeah. feels that intensity. And maybe as they get older, you start to like branch out. But I think when they're little babies, it's just, you know, I'm here to protect you and keep you alive. Right. And, and like, I know it has to change because I know people with older kids and I, I just know kind of know kind of instinctively that they do not feel the need that I feel to, to reach out to other parents and to sort of feel this community and talk with people about what are you experiencing? Is it anything like what I'm experiencing? Because um, their lives have kind of moved on from that point that you're describing. But th- I think this is a really good segue actually into our featured reader for this episode, Elizabeth Lenhard. But first, just to remind you that our next show is coming up on Saturday, November 5th, and you should absolutely come because it's going to be so great. Uh, Matthew Hutchison of Adult Swim Writerly Fame will be there. Also, Jack Walsh, another of my very favorite writers. He does hilarious storytelling and writing all over the Atlanta area. And also Tricia Stearns, who's funny and sweet and just such a great writer. So that's Saturday, November 5th. Come on out to Kavarna if you can make it. It's free and it is totally worth that babysitter. Shows start at 7. Yep, 7 o'clock Saturday, November 5th. And now on to our featured writer. This is Elizabeth Lenhart. She is a mother of two children, author of many novels for children, and a media escort for mostly children's authors. She's pretty much awash in children, and she likes it that way. She lives in Decatur, which is, if you haven't noticed, also awash in children. Because, And she decided this is the place for us because it was the most Stars Hollow-like place she could find. And I actually had to like look up. Like, I was like, what's Stars Hollow? Because I know! <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's the setting for the Gilmore Girls, which everyone else knew. At any rate, I'm very pleased to welcome to the stage, and you should be too, Elizabeth Lenhard. Hi, guys. I knew I'd have to lower this. All right. It was the second trimester of my first pregnancy, and I was euphoric. I'd gotten past the panic of the first three months with its constant specter of miscarriage or misplaced chromosomes. I no longer looked vaguely thick-waisted and round-faced. I had an actual bump. It had become hard and taut like a drum. This is particularly satisfying if you've never had firm abs in your life, which was definitely the case with me because one of my great loves has always been ice cream. 
And in fact, though it's 11 years in the past now, I still remember one of that period's most content moments. My husband and I were eating enormous cones on the front porch of Hank's Ice Cream in Grant Park. Does anybody remember Hank's? I'm pretty sure my flavor was banana pudding. I remember sprawling in my plastic lawn chair and declaring, this is going to be my pregnancy place. I'm going to come here constantly, and I'm going to eat every single flavor in the joint. Damn it, I was smug. And thus, a few days later, I went to a prenatal appointment in which I downed several rounds of syrupy warm Kool-Aid and had my blood drawn over and over again. Then, one of my practice's midwives, the one with the ever-present frown line between her eyebrows, sat me down in her office. My blood tests had not gone well, she told me. My numbers were too high. What does that mean, I asked. I was woozy from the sugar and fluorescent lighting. The midwife scowled with impatience. It means, she said, that you have gestational diabetes. And what that meant, I would quickly learn, was that I had to go on a strict diet and prick my finger four times a day to measure my blood sugar. If those numbers remained high, my fetus could grow too large and be injured in the birth canal. It could be born too early. It could die. It wasn't just unpasteurized cheese I had to worry about now. Every bite that crossed my lips was critical to my baby's survival. The diabetes wouldn't leave my body until the baby did. So I counted Melba toast and almonds and choked down thick plain Greek yogurt because it was a protein bomb. I gnawed chunk after chunk of bland carbless cheddar, but still my numbers rose. So I was put on insulin injecting it into a pinch of fat on my hip before every meal. Sometimes the insulin worked too well and sent me into cold sweat, shuddering blood sugar crashes. I was doing everything right, and it wasn't working. If that wasn't a big fat foreshadowing of parenthood, I don't know what is. <laughs> every evening, because the diet said I could, I ate exactly a half cup of low-fat chocolate ice cream. It was beige and anemic. It was no Hanks. But I gobbled it straight from the measuring cup. But first, I'd scrape the top flat the way a pastry chef levels off her cup of flour when she's baking something precious. Because, of course, that's exactly what I was doing. And it worked, pretty much. My labor did have to be induced two weeks early because the baby had stopped growing. It turned out to be a girl, and she was the opposite of oversized. She wasn't even six pounds. A scrawny little chicken with huge, serious eyes and a pointy chin. Her infancy was pretty torturous, as most are. She didn't sleep much at night, and when she did, I couldn't. She was inches from my face in the bassinet that had replaced my nightstand and the stack of novels on it. I placed my hand, feather light, on her tightly swaddled chest to make sure that it was rising and falling, filling and releasing. I couldn't bring myself to turn away and close my eyes. It was only later that I would realize how lucky I'd been to get this condition that had made my pregnancy feel cursed. It was all that close monitoring that had revealed at a 38 weeks that my baby's placenta had begun to wither and that her growth had stopped. If we hadn't known, if we hadn't constantly been checking, she might have spent those last two weeks withering as well. She might not have made it out alive. 
Maybe it's this knowledge that's made it harder for me to deny what all parents have to deny if they're going to get through each day, the fact that our children could die. I have two daughters now, both born with crystal blue eyes that became a murkier, more interesting green as they grew. The older one is dreamy and moody. Her sister can never stop smiling, flashing a wide gap between her front teeth. I never want to live in a world in which they don't exist. If every parent could protect their child with diets and needle pricks and blood sugar monitors, we'd all gladly spend the rest of our lives rail thin with fingertips that look like ground beef. But of course, life doesn't work that way. So my mind has found other irrational ways to control, to protect. I've developed superstitions, compulsions, rituals. As I did in pregnancy, I have found myself always checking. If I check on the girls every night before I go to sleep, they'll stay safe through morning. If I prune and fertilize and fret over the giant oak tree that looms over our house, it will never splinter and crush us. If, while walking on a busy street, I take the curbside and make my kids walk along the grass, then the distracted texting driver who runs off the road won't hit us. By sheer force of maternal will, by merely being there, I will save us all. This delusion actually has some factual basis. Years ago, when I was living alone in Chicago, I awoke one night to a man standing over my bed, his flashlight blinding me. I didn't recognize my own scream. I leapt out of bed with such force that I gouged my arm on the corner of a bookshelf. That gash would require stitches later, but right then, I didn't feel a thing. Still screaming, I chased the intruder out of my apartment. I learned something about myself that night. When it came to fight or flight, I fought. (laughs) The boogeyman had actually come, and I had conquered him. I have a friend who refused to cut up her kids' grapes when they were toddlers, choking warnings be damned. It wasn't that she was careless with their safety, quite the opposite. But she told me she didn't want to entertain the illusion that we can truly protect our children. And she was right. The truth is, no matter how hard we fight, we can't always conquer. We can't prevent shit from happening in our kids' world. I knew this. And yet, I couldn't get myself to stop cutting the damn grapes. (laughs) If my kids would let me, I would still send them to school with their grapes cut in half. Oh, who am I kidding? Quarters. (laughs) But they're 8 and 10 now. And grape cutting is not just unnecessary, it's a smother, a helicopter blade beating over their heads. Instead, they promise me that they will always bite into their grapes with their front teeth. They promise they won't laugh with hot dogs or grapes in their mouths, that they will always look and listen when crossing streets. But we all know they can't keep those promises, not every single time. Still, I remind them every single time. At every playdate drop-off, I say the same thing. Remember your pleases and thank yous, and run like hell if you see a gun in the house. The statistics say we'll probably be lucky, The internet says we very well may not be. My girls could fall prey to OxyContin or sexual violence or a mass shooting. They've been promised a plummet in self-esteem right around age 12, which for my older daughter is a year and a half away. I know this 
but I have to send them out into the world every day. And so I need my superstitions and rituals, as irrational as they are. The funny thing is, maybe because I worry so much about this remote possibility of death or damage, I'm not much concerned with the things that keep some other parents awake at night. I could never convince myself, for instance, that swearing in front of my kids was a bad thing, not even when they were little. There was only one time that I regretted it. My firstborn was two, and the very next day, she was entering a Waldorf preschool. (laughs) That's where we're going right there. Where children are considered too gentle and precious to look upon a primary color, much less use a word that wasn't crafted with love and generosity. It was on that day that my toddler decided her favorite new word was fuck. (laughs) And I braced myself for pariahdom. I've also had no qualms telling my daughters about sex. So many of my parent friends are terrified of this conversation and do much planning for the talk. I told my daughters without planning to when each was around four. It was just like explaining anything else. Why is the sky blue? Why does honey taste sweet? Why are those two squirrels screeching and humping each other like mad? (laughs) Oh, they're making babies, I said blithely. I launched into an explanation of the penis and vagina and sperm and eggs, and it was all very easy. It didn't occur to me that such talk could damage a little girl who considered her vagina as matter-of-factly as she did her nose or her feet. It was just another useful body part. She stared at the squirrels scrabbling around a tree trunk, stopping every few seconds to mount each other. Did you and Daddy do that, she asked. Yes, I said, we do do that, but there's usually less scampering. I, I still have this disconnect. I cannot fall asleep if my husband or I haven't checked on the girls. We also sleep with our bedroom door open just in case of what? The sheet wrapping itself around my eight-year-old's neck like a boa constrictor and me somehow hearing it. But I'm less worried about one of our girls tiptoeing through that open door one night and catching us scampering. Even though such an image would probably be seared upon her memory forever, seeing your parents in the act is gross and weird, but it won't kill you like a bullet or an inhaled grape. Here's another thing I probably ought to worry about, but strangely don't. Ice cream. My husband is the sugar cop. I'm the one who always allows that extra scoop, even though I know the children of women who had gestational diabetes are more likely than other kids to develop type 2 diabetes. But what is possibly my favorite thing to do with my daughters? Going out for ice cream. We do this a lot, often preceded by a trip to the library. Loaded down with books, we labor over our flavored choices, then settle in with our cones, stealing bites from each other and groaning over the deliciousness. This is a moment in which I find peace. I'm buoyed by the sweetness on my tongue and my girl's giggles in my ears. The happiness that ice cream wreaks can't stave off tragedy any more than grape cutting or bed checking can. It's just another talisman. I'm not sure, as a mother, I'll ever be able to shake them. So I can only accept them, be grateful for the way they make the terror of parenthood endurable. In those ice cream moments, I'm able to think, come what may. I accept that I can't fully protect my kids, that I can't control what happens to them. Nor, when I see how much their growing independence and freedom exhilarates them, would I want to. So I say it again. 
come what may, and I take another lick. Thank you. That's it for Tantrum. We are planning some events in town, if your town is Atlanta or you know, nearby, so stay tuned for those. Yes, and Kate is working very hard finding some really wonderful writers that will be coming up um, later in this season. Yeah, I'm super psyched. And if you like what you hear, share this podcast with all your friends. Why should they do this, Allison? Because raising kids is fun, but hard. Raising kids is life-changing, and yet brain-rotting. This isn't easy, and you're kicking ass. Until next time, I'm Allison Harney. And I'm Kate Sweeney. Thanks to Jeffrey Butzer for letting us use his song Catherine for our music. And thanks to Mike Johns for recording the live show at Kavarna. See ya. Party all the time. Party all the time.